you have, you have appointed a very perfect man to lead this flock. And then you promise that where your word is, that's where your power is, that's where your spirit is moving. And so work through my all too imperfect voice and bring the power of your word to the people you gather here. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and take a seat, friends. Um, so I have a question right up front here. Um, have you ever felt like you were stuck in a wilderness of sorts? Uh, whether literally or figuratively, have you ever just felt like you were sort of um, just lost in a place of chaos and uh, instability? I have, and specifically, I have actually been in a literal wilderness and felt like I was totally trapped. Some of you may have heard this story before, I don't know, but um, in case you have, forgive me, I think it's still engaging enough that it would be interesting anyway. So when I was 19 years old, I went on a trip with my pastor and good friend Ronson Wall to Glacier National Park in Montana. Any of you guys ever been to Glacier, by the way? Anybody? Okay, so it's just me. That's not unusual. Um, and the thing about Glacier National Park is it's sort of like Yellowstone, you know, these great national parks of uh, the country. Um, but it's different than Yellowstone in that you have to actually hike in order to see the real beauty of the park. At Yellowstone, you can kind of go just driving. But on uh, Glacier, you have to sort of hide things backwards to see stuff. And so one day we were there, uh, Ron and I decided we were going to hike to hike on this trail to a place called Iceberg Lake. Now, in total, the hike was about 11 miles. So five and a half miles there, five and a half miles back. Pretty steep terrain, pretty rocky. I mean, it was, you know, it was going to be a challenge, especially considering that Ron and I didn't walk very much in our regular life and were not in the greatest of shape. Um, but we were ambitious and we thought we could do it. We got up early, we packed a little bit of food and some water and headed off to Iceberg Lake. And we did it. We had to find that miles of rough terrain. We got there, it was beautiful, it was stunning, it was awesome. And we hung out there for a little while. And then after well, probably an hour or so, hanging out at this beautiful lake, we decided that we better start heading back because what happens in the mountains up there in Montana is once the sun goes down behind the mountains, then the animals start to believe that it's time to come out and eat because it's a lot of eat when it's dark or dusk. So we want to get back before the sun goes down. So we start walking back, and it becomes immediately clear, abundantly clear, that like that time of rest has made us super sore. Like, I mean, we are hobbling back, going way slower than we need to go, and it becomes clear pretty soon that like the sun is going to go down, and we're going to be hiking in near darkness, and that yes, animals might come out, and indeed they did. So I happen back on the trail, I see. The trail's sort of in the middle of an incline, so there's a mountain this way, mountain that way, and here's the trail. At one point, I see like maybe 300 yards away from us, so not close, two fuzzy-looking animals, two fuzzy-looking creatures, right? 
And my thought is, huh, maybe there are uh, some goats or something. Maybe there's some Rocky Mountain sheep. I'm not thinking about it. Ron, who had grown up in Montana and had spent his whole life going up in the wilderness, recognized exactly what these animals were. They were not goats. They were, in fact, two grizzly bears. And they were making their way toward us. Now, when he said, Eric, those aren't goats, those are grizzly bears, it did not compute. It did not register. I, I literally remember saying, like, oh, cool. <laughs> like, cool, man. Great. Grizzly bears. And then, like, a hurricane rushing in, suddenly it hit me, the reality of what grizzly bears do to human beings that are in their way. And I freaked out. I got paralyzed with fear. Now, it's embarrassing to tell you guys what I did, but I did it, and I can't run away from it. I have read somewhere that if you're going to be attacked by a bear, the, one of the better things you can do is get in the fetal position to protect your vital organs. So without, without even thinking, I got down on the ground and on this trail and got into the fetal position waiting to be eaten to death by the bears. Well, Ron saw me doing this, like, crossed on the ground in the fetal position, and he's like, Eric, what are you doing? Get off me. Drives me up and proceeds to just blaze a trail down the hill into this thick sagebrush. You get your branches breaking and our legs are getting all scraped up because we're wearing shorts and it's just, I mean, it's kind of muddy and there's this kind of body sense to it. And we're, he's just trudging along, driving me. And about 30 feet down to the trail, we stop, exhausted, look back up, and the bears are right where we had just been. Sniffing around. On top of that, we notice about 20 feet further away from us, further down the hill, was a mother moose and her cub. Also not known for being kind and friendly animals when they worry about the protection of their babies. So we are stuck there, unable to move in the wilderness for what seemed like forever, just waiting for these bears to finally go. Well, you know, because I'm here with you tonight, that uh, the bears did not end up taking me out. They eventually got bored or didn't want to go through the sagebrush or whatever, and they, they left, and we were able to get back home from the trail. But my point in telling you that is that to be stuck in a wilderness situation like that can be really, really hard, even dramatic. And to some extent, at least in a figurative way, I think the whole world has kind of felt like they're in something like that for the last five months. Maybe for some it's been, I mean, generally okay, like not a big deal. For others, it's been really traumatic and really hard, but but it just is felt like a place of like chaos and instability and unpredictability, for sure. I mean, it's just, that's just kind of the new normal now, is this sense of not knowing what's coming next. And 
And that's what happens with the people when we are texted too. Jesus' followers are told, we're told that they are in a place of desolation. They're in a wilderness, a place of instability and chaos and uncertainty. And what we're going to see is how it is Jesus responds to us when we get stuck out in the world of desolation. So, with that being said, uh, we'll read from our passage, Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21, that will show us Jesus' response to Romans. It says, verse 15, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the tents. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. Wilderness. They as now send the crowds away to one of the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need to go. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring me here. And he ordered the crowds to sit down in the house. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said to us. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took a twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. And so what do you pick up on in that story about how Jesus deals with those stuck in the woods? Well, first we're told that he has compassion. And it's an abundance of compassion. The word here for compassion is, you know, I think when we hear the word, we have certain things in our mind, but I think we probably get a sense that it has a degree of sentimentality to it. In truth, the word that's used here is much deeper. It has this idea of being stirred to the very core of his being. As he looks out upon this vast crowd of people, we're told 5,000 men, let alone, not including women and children, so 10, 15, 20,000 people, who knows? He sees the sea of humanity, and he knows that in the wilderness they're hungry. And he doesn't just have sentiment for them. But he feels for them right down the very core of who he is. This isn't the only time we see this word used or used to describe how Jesus feels about humanity. At the, the day that he goes to see his dead friend Lazarus, the same word is used to describe how he feels. It's overwhelming compassion. The same word is used to describe the Samaritan. It comes upon the beaten man on the road to Jericho. He sees this man and he feels it deep down in his being. He's got this incredible empathic response to the people in trouble. But there's a second aspect of this compassion that might not become clear to you, but it is there. You'll notice at the very beginning of the text, it almost sounds like it's, it's coming midway through something. And the reason why is because it says, now when Jesus heard this, well, what did he hear? 
If you go back in the previous passage, what we find out is that he's just heard that his cousin, forerunner, one of the people closest to him in the world, John the Baptist, has just been murdered by the city. As a result, Jesus, Jesus' inclination is to want to get away, to take a break, to mourn his friend. It's the most natural response ever. But Jesus' compassion for the world does not allow him to take this break. Because he's so overwhelmed with love for them, he knows that instead of sending them away like the disciples are going to do, that these people are right where they need to be. With him. Which reminds me of a story I heard back in 2006. It's a true story. There was a milk truck driver named Charles Roberts, you might remember hearing about this, who uh, went and broke into an Amish school and shot 11 people. Killed five students while he was there and turned a gun on himself. A terrible, terrible scene. Of course, in this tight the Amish community, just absolutely devastating and filled with grief. What I remember about that story in particular, besides the, the sort of horror of it, was the reports about the response of the community that had just lost friends and family members in the shooting. From the very start, there was one guy who was there, probably a chaplain, who told a reporter the first thing he saw, even as there were still bodies on the ground, was a grandfather sitting with his grandchildren instructing them, we must not hate this man. We must not think ill of him. We must try to love him. It wasn't just that. That night, Members of the Amish community, some of whom had lost family members, some of whom had lost a little girl, showed up at this man's house to let the family know that they were forgiven by him. And it wasn't just that. The community offered, in the days and weeks to come, meals to the wife and children of the man who had committed this horrible crime. They, they had gone above and beyond, even asking if this family wouldn't mind if they could continue to come and visit them, to bless them. Indeed, in our times in the wilderness, Jesus does not take breaks from extending compassion to us, even when the wilderness we may be in could be totally self-imposed as it was for this man who had done such a horrible, horrible evil. Jesus doesn't take a break to extend compassion to you. He is, in fact, always with us and will never forsake us. He is, in fact, always interceding on our behalf before the right hand of the Father. He is, in fact, out of great love for the world still actively bringing new life to this world. He's actively preparing a place for us even now. 
And he does this all out of great compassion for you. But it's not just a feeling of compassion that Jesus has, because of course the central thrust of the story is, is that this compassion moves him to do something, namely to provide for them. Now of course there's a problem, right? I mean, the disciples know, you know, Jesus says, oh, well, why don't you guys go ahead and feed them since they're hungry? And the disciples are like, dude, we've got like three loaves of Italian bread and, you know, a couple of trout. Like, what do you want to do with that? And uh, Jesus is like, um, you know, bring them in. Bring them in. And of course, it's, this is this famous mirror. We don't know how he does it. But Jesus prays, asks for God's blessing upon the bread, and then suddenly the bread keeps on multiplying and multiplying and multiplying such, to such an extent that, that it ends up feeding the whole crowd until we're told they are all satisfied. Now that in itself would be an encouraging story. Like, hey, that's great. But it goes deeper. It goes deeper than merely just providing food for people. It also reminds us that based on the setting and the crowds and Jesus, Jesus' words that he'll go on to say in this event found in John chapter 6, that this feeling of this crowd is meant to conjure up in their minds imagery from the Old Testament. Remember another time God's people were in a wilderness down in the book of Exodus? They were hungry, they were complaining, they were starving. What does God do? He provides bread from heaven. In John 6, where this same event is recorded, Jesus says, that bread that God provided from heaven for his people in the wilderness is ultimately fulfilled this day in him. He is the bread of heaven. He is saying to them, I am God in your midst, and I can provide for your every need. It's why we come to God and we ask him in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, because he, in fact, is the source of all that we need that will truly satisfy. And of course, goes even deeper than that. Because it's not just a mere physical bread, but it's also the spiritual sustenance that we need, too. In that same passage in John 6, when Jesus is talking about the feeding of the 5,000, he says, well, that actually the bread, the real bread, is his body and blood given to the forgiveness of sins. In the feeding of this group, we're pointed to the reality of what he's going to institute later, which is this very meal right here. The bread, the wine, the body and the blood of Christ given to the forgiveness of our sins. So the point is, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who provides for your physical needs, and I provide for all your spiritual needs. And you do so out of great compassion for you, as you wander through the wilderness of this world. Well, there's one final thing I notice about how Jesus responds here, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up and, and go to the things I'll explain to you and we'll how to do that. And that is, Jesus doesn't just have compassion, he doesn't just provide, but he, he, he also empowers. He empowers. 
Now, it is simply a fact, because God, Jesus is God, he could have just had the bread and the fish, like, just show up in people's laps. Like, they need to be sitting there like, oh, look, bread. That could happen. I mean, listen, that's what, I mean, God literally caused bread to come from heaven, from the sky, for people in the Old Testament. God can't do that. God can do crazy stuff like that if he wants to. We think that's but you know how God provides for us most of the time? Through other people. Most of the time, God, instead of choosing to do something that's supernaturally miraculous, chooses to empower people to be distributors of his gifts to the world in the midst of other moments. And that's what he does here with the disciples. He sends the disciples out to distribute his gifts. And here's the point. He is still doing that today through you. Through your various locations in life. The simple stuff of life. Jesus is using you to bring provision to the world. Think about it. And think about how we've seen this become so abundantly clear in the last five months. Through the stock work and the checker, God is providing the means at the grocery store by which you can receive sustenance. Through the doctors, the nurses, the medical staff, God chooses most of the time to provide healing to the world in that particular street. Through dad going out and playing catch with his kid, God shows children a lot of attention they so desperately need. Through a just police officer who suits up to protect the citizenry from injustice, Jesus often works to provide protection for you. You name it. I mean, whatever various things you're doing, unless they're explicitly forbidden in Scripture, I'm telling you, even if you don't feel it, you don't see it, God is working in this way for the good of other people. Most of the time it's happening and you're not conscious of it at all. That's how he likes to work. He likes to empower you to go out and serve them. So think about it here. Each week as we do this online service, you know, God was providing a beauty to the service through, or at least an interesting design of the service through Dom's skills with some of the graphics at the beginning and at the end. Uh, through Matt and Dom's skills of sort of being able to do some video editing, it was able to seamlessly flow so that you weren't distracted by any awkwardness during the service. Through Matt and Kat being willing to say, Will being willing to make videos, all of this served other people. God was working in all of them. It really is true. As much as it may be sort of a cliched statement by now, 
It should be. And this is the statement. Okay, this is the statement. You're just one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread. And God's working through beggars like us to bring bread to the world. Because He's filled with compassion. He provides for all our needs. And He likes to do so through flawed people like us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in the midst of our wilderness experiences in this life, that you are faithful. That you don't stand idly by, but that you have a great compassion. Come to where we're at to meet our needs. Father, I pray now that you would continue to remind us how much we do need you all the time. To that end, we pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory.